Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jessamine Newhouse about her book, Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers. Welcome to the show, Jessamine. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that I get to talk to another introvert about (laughs) all the things that makes teaching scary and exciting at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) Before we dive into that great talk, though, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I am a full-time professor of U.S. history and popular culture at the State University of New York in Plattsburgh, New York. We are way upstate New York, uh, really close to the Canadian border, actually. I'm also the part-time interim director of the Center for Teaching Excellence here on campus. And I get to teach uh, super fun faculty development workshops on things like the unessay and ungrading. And I get to teach totally awesome classes about history of pop culture subjects like superheroes and zombies and the prom. And I did one, or I'm doing one right now. I'm, I'm planning right now for a first year seminar about the limited Netflix series, Midnight Mass. So if anybody has any good ideas about talking about that in class, let me know. Okay, I wanna take all of these classes. (laughs) You're welcome. If I have to do hybrid, you can zoom in. That sounds great. As a fellow historian, I was like, hmm, I'm a 19th century, so I have Uh to learn all of these other things by taking a class because I don't understand my own pop culture. I never have since I was a kid. Never was in touch with my peers. Just going to lay that out there right now. It's almost like you're some kind of nerd or something. Yeah, this book title speaks to me. I was like, oh, she wrote a book just for me. That's so nice. I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about your own academic journey, how you got from A to B. Did you think one day you'd be teaching ungrading? Where yeah. did you Where did you start when you were, you know, back as an undergrad? Yeah, so I got my BA in religious studies, actually, at a small liberal arts college, the College of Worcester. And I liked academia. I always did. I, I can't say I was a straight A student. I wasn't. I was straight A student in the subjects I liked. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be an academic basically as soon as I started college. I have to say my advice to people who want to get their doctorates and want to go into academia is if there's anything else that you might want to do to try that first because <laughs> The job market is insane. It's like a Hunger Games hellscape. And the 
the process of getting a doctor is pretty grueling as well. I was very fortunate to to have a partner who could support me. Um, so when I finished my my master's and my doctorate at the Claremont Graduate University in history, I was able to spend several years as an adjunct doing kind of um, contingent job gigs before the stars aligned and I was able to get a tenure track job here at Plattsburgh in an area that I, I really enjoy and feel passionate about. Um, I've done quite a bit of scholarship in the history of gender. My first book was about gender and cookbooks. My second book was about housework and housewives in advertising. But Geeky Pedagogy was the project of my heart, the book of my heart. I, I'd been teaching for a really long time and just kind of starting to get the hang of it. So when I started to delve into the scholarship of teaching and learning, that took me in, a, in an unexpected direction. I, I had, not, had not foreseen that. I thought I'd be teaching gender and popular culture, race, ethnicity, popular culture, religion and popular culture. I didn't foresee faculty development or scholarship of teaching and learning, but increasingly that's where I've been publishing and speaking and working. So that leads uh, to the next question, which is if you had to give somebody the elevator pitch of this book, what what is it? The elevator pitch. I think, let me see. I haven't done an elevator pitch for a while. Elevator pitch for geeky pedagogy. That I would say you should read this book because nobody is born an effective teacher from your first class to your last, we're always learning how to help our students succeed. And framing teaching as that pedagogical learning, another fascinating um, intellectual, emotional, scholarly problem to tackle. Like that's what we in academia do best. You know, that's our jam. You know, give us a problem, give us research to do and watch us go. And this book is written for those of us in higher education who were so passionate about our subjects that we ignored advice like the advice I just gave and, and said, no, I don't care that I may not ever get a full-time job. I love history so much. I must get a doctorate. Now let's translate that nerdy passion into passion for teaching effectively as well. And like you said, it's not a, it's not a natural transition. It doesn't happen by osmosis. No. Like I've been sitting no, in the classroom not. since I was four and a half years old. <laughs> and now I'm a full adult with a pile of degrees. <laughs> and so I can just say this stuff and you'll all magically understand yeah, it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real mismatch. Uh, you know, it's changing a little bit. I think graduate programs generally speaking, are somewhat more attentive to issues of teaching. Increasingly, if you get a doctorate, you've also had at least a couple classes in pedagogy and teaching, but not always. And it's still often the afterthought for people 
who are attracted to the life of the mind. The teachings is kind of often relegated to the to the to the grunt work we have to do so we can sit in, you know, at our desks and think our thoughts or go to our labs or write our code or whatever we geek out about. So yeah, in general, we're not not very well prepared. And not everybody, but introverts are disproportionately represented in academia. Um, there's extroverts, there's a lot of ambiverts, you know, people who get energy from interacting with others and energy from sitting by themselves and thinking their thoughts. Not, not, not everyone is the extreme end of introverts um, the way I am. But that also is, it's not, doesn't necessarily lend itself to easily transitioning to the classroom where the basis for learning is interaction, is human interaction. You know, like I say at, at the end of, of, of the book, you know, we can't, we're not Spock. We can't just like mind meld the knowledge into students' heads. We have to interact. So, um, building our skills with that, with that in mind that being an introvert, being a super nerd may pose some obstacles, but it can also be how we frame our own pedagogical learning and figuring out what is going to work for us in the classroom to help, help us in our individual contexts with our student populations. Because I, I, I do need to flag here, if we're talking about introverts, talking about intellectuals, but I do want to flag one of the very first things I talk about in the book is that identity is important. And Rox, the sociologist Roxanne Harlow, the term she used that I, I really like and use is disparate teaching realities. So our identity, our embodied identity matters a lot as a, a white cisgendered woman, my teaching context is not the same as my colleagues who are white men, as my colleagues who are African-American or black Americans. Um, our, con our teaching context can be different. The challenges can be different. So I just want to flag that as well. I'm curious about writing this book. Um, how did it come to be? <laughs> so I'm married to an off-the-charts extrovert. Really, it really was opposites attract here. Um, and our child is also very, very extroverted. He, he is 20 now. He's in college. But when he started school, I had to think a lot. I'd start noticing, noticing a lot about how different his experience of school was from my experience of school. His favorite time of the school day was gym class. My nightmare scenario was gym class. <laughs> He's an, he, the academic part of school just never interested in that much. And as he you know, made his way through the educational system, it really got me thinking about my own context of teaching and how differently many of my students might be experiencing college 
than I did and the, the classroom than I did and I do. And that started me down the road towards, okay, so how can I connect better with students? How can I facilitate learning? How can I acknowledge these things by myself, but then create effective learning environments for all those extroverts and ambiverts out there? And the people like my son who don't really love sitting and reading and don't want to spend hours and hours and hours poring over complex intellectual problems for fun. <laughs> so that, that, that was the genesis of the start, like looking at that difference in my own home life and my child's life and starting to branch out, think more about college and education generally. You said you and your husband are opposites. There's this <laughs> meme, and I don't generally like memes. They make it too simple. But it says, how does an introvert make friends? And it was get an extrovert to adopt them. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually when I was thinking about it. I, like, I think that's actually how I made all my friends. Um, you know, and, yeah. and I've also realized that that leaves me with a deficit of skills. Because when mm. I'm going everywhere with an extrovert, I am an expert in nodding. Like, yeah, we're big <laughs> When you're teaching the class, when you're having to communicate with 30 people at once, mm -hmm. nodding's not going to cut it. No. It's not, it's not no, going to work. That's right. And you out yourself in the beginning. On page one, you give one of your first uh, teaching evaluations, which and it says, and you quote it, just because you know a lot about something doesn't mean you can teach it. And then you say that was an anonymous We're 19... into my brain yeah, forever. Yeah, anonymous yes. 1998 student evaluation I received after teaching my first college class. Um, yep. I think we can all relate, though, mm -hmm. whether we were teaching assistants thrown into a class. I can think of one that was completely outside my uh, area. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that I got assigned this. Mm -hmm. And this was a class where the teaching as a teaching assistant, it meant you were teaching. Right. And so I asked them, why? What am I supposed to do? And I remember the professor said, don't worry, you'll always be a week ahead of your students. So I had like double Yay. imposter syndrome. I had not had pedagogy training and I did not know this subject. And I was literally a week ahead of these people. And then just for a third whammy, I looked really young for my age. Mm -hmm. And the students continually had confusion yeah. that I was actually old enough to be teaching them. <laughs> and that's when you know you look really young, like when people younger than you think you're younger than yeah, them. Yeah. That's you know, that that's when you're you're in a deficit. You're talking about identity being a factor as well and how yeah. you how you present in class and, and right. for people who are very young uh, yeah. professors, very young teachers, yeah. particularly if you look really young, yeah. the advice we get is like wear all black clothing, mm -hmm. don't smile very much. Like <laughs> you sort of try to get your authority through being stern. That yeah. still doesn't tell you how to teach. No. Well and I I I'm gonna kind of break the uh I guess the rules of our, our podcast here, because I, I have to, I just have to give a shout out to promote my forthcoming anthology. I'm editing an anthology. It's, uh, it's with uh, West Virginia University Press again, and it is an anthology. The title is 
picture a professor and we're we're workshopping the subtitle right now but it's something like interrupting bias about faculty and increasing student learning and the authors uh, are very diverse in terms of disciplines and backgrounds and identities and the very first section is about the first day and there's a number of scholars who reflect on strategies for interrupting that specific bias about age and looking young, which happens more to um, female faculty women who, than, uh, than men. So shout out to future reading for exactly that kind of issue, <laughs> um, because it's, it is a, it is a regular obstacle. Now, of course, you won't always have that obstacle. Uh, you, you will, you won't always look too young to be a professor, but that that concept of who's supposed to look like a, what a professor looks like and how that limits um, and, and reinforces racialized and gendered stereotypes about expertise and authority. Uh, there's going to be a great book out on just that very, very topic. I'm glad that you that you all are doing that. Um, but but it does lead to to uh, I wish I'd had that book then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it it also uh, leads to why this book is even more important yeah. because so many people are going into the classroom yeah. and they are not they are not yeah. the Netflix stereotype that someone just yes. saw in a in a professor movie. We don't have yeah. that house. We yeah. don't look like that person. Um, yeah, that damn super professor. I swear. I mean, I, I, you know, I, so I study culture and I teach about culture and the depictions of professors are so limited. And the, that stereotype, it's not just in our students' heads, it's in our heads, it's in our heads too. So not only are we coming into the classroom, many of us with less than ample training and experience teaching, but we also have this impossible, stupid ideal of what teaching and learning looks like. So those same depictions, not only is it super professor, white guy, old white guy in a tweed jacket, but must also, be yeah, must be tweed. Um, but also he's lecturing. He's lecturing brilliantly. And the students sit there like utterly passive little just receptacles of knowledge. And they laugh at his jokes and they applaud. And magically they learn just by listening. And that is not what real learning and teaching looks like. That's not how it works. It takes a lot of practice. It takes struggle. It takes failure. It takes feedback and repeat and repeat and repeat. That's for effective learning and that's for effective teaching. I love that you brought up that example. I, I know from, from other female professors that things that we get held to account for male professors do not. Yeah. And a, a lot of the what not to do on page 56 um, which I'll, I'll go ahead and, and list now, um, not knowing students' names, not making eye contact, mm-hmm. being late to class, rushing out as soon as it's over, mm-hmm. not keeping office hours, being arrogant or condescending. Mm-hmm. Female professors get 
dinged for all of that. That's right. Yeah. Male professors, it's considered that, well, they're very busy and important. Of course they got here five minutes late and we all sat and waited for them. Of course they're rushing out. Of course they canceled office hours. We didn't say it was canceled. They're just not here. Of course they haven't learned my name. They're so busy. They've been doing this for years. Why would they learn my name? And then if they do learn your name, you're super Mm -hmm. flattered. He knows my name. (laughs) Embodied identity matters. That's the first reality. In chapter one, I talk about cultivating awareness um, and the four realities that every effective instructor needs to cultivate because they're always changing. First, embodied identity is important. Um, Learning is hard. Who our students are and who we are. And constantly taking note of those, paying attention to those. Some of them we can't change. Some of them are, are they're beyond our control. So, um, you know, teaching the students we have, understanding that because of gendered and racialized assumptions and expectations, building rapport with students is a different undertaking for me and then for some other faculty, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, it's, like my husband says, and it drives me bonkers. He says sometimes, you know, it is what it is, which is so irritating, except that he's right. You know, <laughs> sometimes it is what it is. You list also what students complain about, and they complain about lack of respect, talking down, being unhelpful, and being unapproachable. Can you talk to, especially new professors, about how we avoid those pitfalls? Because particularly for, for students who are who are first gen or who mm-hmm. may feel we're unapproachable because mm-hmm. we are professors, because there's yeah. a power imbalance, yeah. um, these are things to be really mindful of. Mm-hmm. But being mindful of it doesn't mean we know what to do. Can, for, my, for me, it can make me feel more awkward. Yeah. Um, I think... Something that's very helpful and is actually one of the kind of easiest uh, entries into the scholarship of teaching and learning is the syllabus, syllabus creation and using welcoming and supportive language on your syllabus. There's so much great, you know, easily accessible advice about how to craft your first communications with students to lay a foundation where you can uh, demonstrate approachability and show that you care about their learning. That's one of the key points that I try to reframe for some people. Cause when, I mean, when I, when I started teaching, I would have thought, you know, if somebody told me students need to know you care about them, I'm like, Oh man, I'm, I'm shit out of luck then because I am not a warm and fuzzy person. I, I partly just cause I, 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 I'm a big nerd and very academic and partly cause I'm an introvert and I don't, I'm not a gushy warm person, but then I started to get student feedback and they kept saying she cares. She cares a lot. I'm like, what's going on here? And I finally <laughs> figured it out. I was, definitely and totally clearly expressing care for students in a way 
that worked for me in my context. And that was being incredibly interested in their ideas, being deeply invested in their academic success, uh, uh, saying, I care about your success in this class. I love this topic. I love teaching about this topic. I want you to learn about this topic. Expressions of care then can be uh, adapted to ones that work for you. Trying to do something that makes you feel weird and awkward is going to make students feel weird and awkward. (laughs) So finding ways that work for you in your context, for your personality, to clearly, transparently communicate to students that you want them to learn your incredibly interesting topic. And I think some of those what not to do play into that. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're on time and you're not rushing out the door, that's a demonstration of care. I'm here for this time with you and I have time for you and I'm fully present and making eye contact for a lot of people, uh, particularly if you're neurodivergent, eye contact can Mm be a, 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 a whole nother conversation, but as best you can, making it clear that you are listening attentively while that person is speaking. And that can be sort of inclining your head towards them, leaning in towards them, stopping what you're doing. I was thinking when I read the uh, eye contact one, I was thinking back Mm -hmm. to being a grad student. Mm -hmm. And when I would be in office hours and the professor would be typing on their computer and saying, don't worry, I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, uh, What's the most polite way I could say that that seems like an ineffective pedagogical approach. (laughs) And, you know, in most cases, I think they got the gist of it. But I sat there feeling, yeah, yeah, I sat there feeling only partially visible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this isn't all to say, I mean, I should note, you know, in the, the chapter on preparation, Part of the preparation is preparing for, for, for conflict and for things not to go well. We are human beings and learning is really hard. And oh, P.S. right now, in the midst of a global pandemic, we're all maxed to the max. I, like we're all so stressed and anxious and even traumatized. And into this mix comes learning. And there are going to be conflicts. There's going to be emotions. Like things are really, really hard, even when there's not a, a horrible virus sweeping through us. So part of the preparation, careful preparation, like your syllabus and your planning, is thinking about ways to put things into effect that can minimize those conflicts and then having some scripts and some things ready in your head for when there are potential conflicts, always being ready to say, thank you for that, for sharing that with me. Let me think about it for a minute. Let me think about it for a little while. Let me, let me think about it and get back to you in the next class. You know, we don't, we don't have to try to decide and resolve things in the moment when emotions are at their highest. And it's not that, you know, nobody, extrovert, introvert, everyone in between, nobody likes 
likes conflict. No, nobody finds it fun to deal with in the workplace. But I think for introverts and for nerds so deeply invested in their their topic, it can be especially difficult. Um, some you know reoccurring conflicts or uh, run-ins with students. So having some preparation there can be helpful as well. And you do tell us that in the prep uh, chapter that you can be super organized. Prep is very important, but you can't plan for everything. And you seem to compensate by having an extremely tidy office. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, it's funny now that you say that. I I wrote that so like offhandedly when I was writing this, it would have been, you know, 2018, um, 2019. Now, like my house, my office, it's not just tidy. Like it is super clean because that is a coping mechanism of mine. <laughs> That's like a, a way that I rest and soothe my very, very anxious brain is by organizing. And so you can bet during this time of just unrelenting uncertainty and upheaval things have gotten highly organized in the new house office i think that's an important part of uh when you're an introvert is Mm-mm. planning how you're going to yes. recharge yourself. We were talking yeah. off air a few minutes ago yeah. and um, we both talked about how we were going to recharge after doing the podcast. And yeah. I was like, I'm hanging out with my dog. Like that is just <laughs> what I do every time I'm done with these. I, I love the podcast. I'm thrilled to get to talk yeah. to people about their books and yeah. bring this information. I just geek out yeah. on how much I, Every single guest, I'm like, I'm so excited you're here and I'm not <laughs> cheating on all of you. I'm glad for every one of you. I'm genuinely thrilled. Yeah. And then I crash. Right, right. And and so when you're talking about the need to organize your house and, mm-hmm. and in the book you reference taking a mindfulness class, when we become teachers and we switch from getting to sit in the archive or getting to be in the lab yeah. and having all that thinky time yeah. where we with our <laughs> thinky thoughts and that's our company is us and our brain. And now we have to go where it's really people-y. Yes, that's right. And we're, we're happy to do that because mm-hmm. we get to share our thinky thoughts with people right, who hopefully right. want to participate as long as we can convey information in a way that's inviting them in and not talking at exactly. them. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. But in order to get up and do that the next day, because yeah. if you're the teacher, it's not like, well, that was yeah. fun. Yeah. I did it once and now I'm done. It's not like giving yeah. a conference paper. <laughs> You've got to go back tomorrow and the next day. So can we talk a little bit about understanding that you are an introvert? Yeah and how you're going to plan for that part of prep. Yeah, that's a great question and has been a lot on my mind actually cuz I the pandemic has actually shifted or I would say increased my understanding of this even more. Because when when I wrote Geeky Pedagogy, I had had a lot of experience with exactly the dynamic you're talking about where being in the classroom I, I I always enjoyed it, but it it was a it took a toll on my energy, and I had to plan for for I, I'm I'm very lucky that I I have my own office and I have a door on my office, and I deliberately planned for you know I have class from here to here, and now this is when I go in my office and shut my door. I'm not going to schedule something right after class. I'm going to rest and recuperate 
my introvert time. But I discovered during the pandemic when I was not in the physical classroom and had to pivot online. And I, I learned a lot about online, effective online teaching. And there's some tools I've added to my pedagogical toolkit I'm going to keep using forever. And I'm really grateful for that. But I discovered that the class, the physical classroom is my attention retreat. That's that's the term from Jim Lang's new book about cultivating student attention in the classroom. And he argues that it's not about class policies to get students to put down their phone, but it's about creating a classroom that's like a attention sanctuary where you can go and what you are talking about and learning is so fascinating that your attention is grabbed and kept. Well, it turns out that teaching is my attention sanctuary and is the only thing I do, the only thing where I am fully and totally in the present moment. And I'm not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not fretting about the thing I did yesterday, but just totally and completely there. And part, and that's in large part because I'm an introvert. So it takes my best attention to effectively interact with my students because I want them to learn. <laughs> I want to be an effective educator, but it takes all my attention and I cannot cultivate that anywhere else. I've, I, I, I try to meditate. I, tr I exercise a lot, but my brain is full of monkeys jumping and screeching. Um, like you said, the thinky thoughts, it, they, they just never really stop except when I'm in the classroom. And now that I have had, have not had that experience for a couple of what's since March, 2020, um, I am back in the in-person classroom this semester, but it's masked, which is a whole new level of peopling. Um, I, I really, I really miss that. I, I miss it, which if you told me, super introvert Jessman, you are going to miss the interactions with people in the classroom. I mean, you're going to pine for them. Be like, well, I don't know about that. But in fact, it turns out that that is the case. So I guess thinking about what I would say to other people, other introverts, um, maybe especially people just starting out with teaching with teaching is thinking about how to, how to find balance. It's really about the balance, the balance between exerting yourself, putting that energy and attention that can also feel really fulfilling, even as it is tiring into teaching the same way that kind of comes naturally as breathing when we're replenishing our batteries, doing our, doing our introvert things, doing our, doing our research, doing our writing, doing our, our solitary endeavors. Um, I think we can also cultivate that kind of, I, I guess I call it awareness and attention for the human people in part of our job. You talk about in the book 
that we can teach things that we're excited about that if we told the students, you know, that's what we were going to teach, they would have been like, nope, not interested. (laughs) And when I read that part of the book, I thought, oh, yeah. And I can think of two different evaluations for two different classes where the students overwhelmingly put on the evaluations the same things. And one of them was I was teaching a Civil War class. And I kept, Mm -hmm. when they were hiring me, I kept saying, are you sure you want me? I was at my own job interview. I was like, you know that I I really specialize in in women and gender. I'm going to go really gendery on the guys who are fighting. And they're like, no, you can do this. I'm like, I could teach, actually, here's an idea. I could do the entire Civil War as women's history. They would get all of it, but we just look at the women. And they were like, no. And I was like, darn it, because now I want to teach that class. and so they're like, no, you can, you can, you can bring women in, but we really need you to do mm-hmm. you know, military history and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, women were involved in that. Like, no, Dr. Gessler, <laughs> we, we have a syllabus for you and you can tweak it, but we want you to kind of stay with that. Cause I was filling in for a professor who was on sabbatical and I was like, okay. okay yeah. And so we got partway through the semester and, you know, I liked teaching him. It was a round table uh, class, Mm-mm. small class mm-hmm. size. Um, it was discussion based. Uh, it was it was upper level. Like everybody was a senior, and they mm-hmm. you know they needed this class, um, mm-hmm. and and really a lot of depth to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I just you know had a day where I had to be me. So I came in and I put some diaries on the table because my passion is nineteenth century women's diaries. Okay, and, yeah. And cool. so I have a few. They're not Civil War because. I don't have that price point. <laughs> right, right. Those are the really expensive ones. And yeah. I said, just, you know, we were talking about, and we, we'd watched a little bit of a documentary, and they were mm-hmm. talking about some of the the, the guys keeping diaries. I mm-hmm. don't have their diaries, but I want you to have a sense of what a 19th century diary looked like, what the mm-hmm. handwriting was like, what the paper was right. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Pass them around. And I had, mm-hmm. I don't know how many I brought. I think they paired up, right? And mm-hmm. they said, and just go ahead work together and try to read me a page. Mm-hmm. And they were like, are you pranking us? Like, I can't read this. <laughs> and they were having it, you know, they were really struggling. And so, yeah. you know, I said, well, just pick a page and give it to me. And so I read it to them and then I gave it back. And they're like, how did you do that? I'm like, this is what I do. This is yeah. my, this is my yeah. passion. I was worried later. And I also, oh, I brought them hard tack as an apology. I was like, here, let me give you something definitely Civil War-y. And I told them to bring coffee that week. And you can eat this while we're working in a yeah. real archive. You can't eat while we're working. And so they're trying to eat their horrible hard tack. They found a reenactment place in Pennsylvania that would mail it. And, um, and so they're trying to eat their hard tack and they're struggling through these diaries and stuff. And, you know, later I walked away and I thought, you know, they're going to hate that because I took them totally away from mm-hmm. military strategy, economic problems, the horrible inflation in the South, you know, all that across the board on the evaluations. They're like, we really loved it when Dr. Gessler tried to force <laughs> us to read diaries. And that, you know, that memory came back because I was geeking out. That's right. And I yep. was getting it into this subject through something yep. that I love. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's the enthusiasm, which is a loaded word for introverts. Because when I say enthusiasm, you know, the stereotype goes to a cheerleader, you know, someone who's really peppy, someone who's a big performer. That's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the case for, for effective teaching. It's enthusiasm for your topic, which again, you loved so much, you had to get a doctorate in it. And students respond to it. They may not ever 
be as infatuated as you are with 19th century diaries, but they know and respond to your enthusiasm for the subject. Um, I think I quote in the book, uh, Mary Ellen Weimer, who says something like enthusiasm can cover a multitude of sins, teaching sins, (laughs) that students are ready and willing to learn with you you know, maybe you're not the most entertaining person, but watch you nerd out about these primary sources. They're going to be interested. They're going to understand and appreciate that you're there because you want to be there. That's a way of communicating that you respect their time and that you respect their endeavors when you are enthusiastic about your material because you're conveying, I want you to be too. I want you to to share in some of this. Um, And it it frames like what we're all doing there in that room as something, yeah, I could do this. I could could get through this class. You know, maybe I I thought I didn't care much about the Civil War. I'm never going to love 19th century diaries, but the professor loves them and made the class fun. And you tell us that about prep. You see that planning mm-hmm. looks different depending on your personality, your identity, the kinds of students you're teaching, mm-hmm. and the employment status. And I touched on yeah. that a bit in, in my story that That's right. you know, I wanted to tweak the syllabus a lot. And yeah. I had to really find out what their standards were. And I yeah. also... Um, you know, I'm into ungrading. I'm into the unessay. Mm-hmm. This school was not. Right. <laughs> and yes. so... Uh, partway through, you know, they, you know, I'd filed my syllabus with them and I've made my tweaks, which I thought were minor, which kind of tells you the difference between, again, knowing your identity, yeah. knowing your biases, the, the difference between yeah. you and yeah. what they, their standards are, what they yeah. need. So, so they yeah. called me and she was, she was nice about it. And she's like, oh, remove one of these and add a standardized exam. And I said, what? what? <laughs> and she said, you're either going to have to give them a real in-class midterm or a real in-class final. And then you can go oh, on real with final, huh? Okay. Yeah, the, the way that you have this structured, we'll just leave the rest. All right. Um, and I was like, okay, well then I'll pick the final because they can hate <laughs> me on the last day. <laughs> and she was, yeah. I don't think I said the quiet part out loud, but um, <laughs> um, that's what I did. I, I left everything in it, and I and I kept I kept the final. Um, but this is an important part of prep. Like I did then yep. have to change the syllabus. Unfortunately, yep. we were a few weeks in, and I had to say mm-hmm. the students. Um, I have to give you a final. And they were like, yeah, it's okay. We're seniors. We were pretty surprised that you were going to get away without a final. Um, and, and I said, we were still going to do the same amount of work. And they're like, yeah, but that's not how it works here. So, you know, I have these, you know, 21 yeah. year olds being to me like, eh, you aren't going to get away with that. It's not a big change in the syllabus contract in, in our opinion, but it is part yeah. of that. Yeah. 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 I try to be in the book and, and everything I do with faculty development. I do try to be cognizant of the unique teaching context that everybody's working in. And those are very much influenced by, like we've already discussed a little bit, embodied identity, but also by institutional culture and definitely by employment status. It really, really shakes out in different ways what you can try Um, and what you can uh, just like 
see, hey, does this work? You know, the spaghetti you could throw on the wall and see if it sticks. I mean, it really depends on your institutional context and your employment status. If you got student evaluations hanging over your head, not as as helpful feedback on your teaching, but as disproportionately impacting your employment status in an unhelpful way, then what you can, how much you can challenge student expectations, how much you can try um, non-traditional, like just like you're saying, assessment practices, that's going to be, that's all going to be impacted. There, There is no one size fits all, no this teaching tip or trick works in every situation, everywhere, for everyone. No, that just doesn't exist. And I, I don't know why more scholarship on teaching and learning isn't clearer on this point. Like why some of us, well, when we're writing, it just seems like they're, the authors are assuming everybody's in a tenure track job at a nice liberal arts college. I mean, that's just not the case. Um, even like so-called best practices can be very different, have very different meanings depending on who you're teaching, where you're teaching, and your positionality on the campus. And you have real awareness of that because you did a number of adjunct jobs. That's and right. If I'm reading this correctly, you did them in a number of different schools, similar to very my different. experience where I've adjuncted yeah. here and I've adjuncted there. And you feel like you're having the same conversation. I was asking about the practices and protocols. And then, you know, mm-hmm. I got called in and was like, where's the final on this syllabus? <laughs> like, I thought we talked about all this. And you know, it was really interesting because I had a just before that, adjuncted at a state school, not mm-hmm. too far away. Mm-hmm. And I had the same conversation with the head of the department mm-hmm. about, you know, we want, that was a women's history class. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he said, well, we give our professors complete leeway on designing uh, the, you know, the uh, content analysis, how you're mm-hmm. going to determine what your students' grades really are. As long as you have something, mm-hmm. we're fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that misconceptions are kind of across the board because when the students saw that it was a take-home midterm, they were like, I'm going to love this class, right? <laughs> and so they come back after the midterm, the take-home midterm, and they hand it in. I'm just looking at a sea of glazed eyes. Mm. These are tired people, mm-hmm. right? And I had planned a documentary for that day. I think we were watching about the history of Tupperware, which is uh-huh. a really interesting yes, that's uh, a good piece one. of women's history. And, yeah. um and I had planned it because I thought if they did this right, they're going to come back really tired. Mm-hmm. And so when we're done with the documentary, I was like, does anyone have a question? And one person raised their hand and they said, why was this the hardest test I've ever taken in my life? <laughs> and I said, was it? And they're all like nodding, like, you know, and I said, oh, well, because you had to think instead of memorize. Mm-hmm. And they were all like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, though, that it raises a really important point apart about preparation that is it's like next level and but it's really important for people like us who are starting to nerd out not just about our topics but we're nerding out about teaching so we get all pumped up about some new assessment mechanism or some new strategy in the classroom that's going to totally rock the students world well in our nerdy brains that's awesome cuz It's so much fun to try new things in the classroom and stretch our brains, but student expectations and assumptions will be 
challenged and they're not necessarily going to jump up and down with joy. Like, oh, I get to do something totally new I haven't done before. They might not initially anyway rush to join you in your um, enthusiastic uh, nerd party for this new thing you're doing. <laughs> I did warn them. I did say, you know, plan the, the amount of time you would have spent studying plus the amount of time you would have spent in class. Yeah. Plan for at least that for a take yeah. home midterm. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was interesting later. I mean, I think they hated me for about two weeks. And then later. <laughs> no, because um, they wouldn't have said anything. They wouldn't have well, said, why was this the hardest? They, they, were, they were communicating clearly with you. They were. But about two weeks later, when they'd gotten all their midterms back, including mine, the thing that they said was, you know, I can't remember what I put on any of my other midterms. I went in, I took the test, I got it done, I checked it off. And they're like, I think I'm actually learning stuff in here. <laughs> that is what I call on Twitter a professor win. That's a very big professor win. And you know what? That's exactly the kind of thing that happens as we're going along teaching. It's so easy to let those moments just pass us by, you know, we all have this negativity bias and we're looking and we remember, Oh, I, I totally tanked that assignment or, Oh, that student is so unhappy and miserable. And we forget these, these achievements, these, these real moments that we, that, that, that we done good, you know, we need to pay attention to those things like that. Like that kind of student feedback is so, so good, um, but may not be recorded in your official evaluation. So it's up to us. I mean, I would say, especially when we're being just, all our batteries are being just sucked dry by teaching right now in the midst of this pandemic. It's even more important to take note of the things we do well, the, the, the comments from students, it's just an aside, but it's a huge victory. Take note, share it on Twitter, write it down on the syllabus. You know, you're keeping a syllabus throughout the semester, making little notes to yourself. Um, if you can't stand the idea of doing a teaching journal, just make a list, keep a note, keep a file on your teaching wins, the things that went really, really well, because those, those are always there too. I know we're running short on time, but I'd love to come back to one thing about this syllabus. Sure. When we're talking about prep, I know that professors put a lot of prep into it. I know that yeah. they do. Um, and then I kind of um, haunt social media to see what's <laughs> happening. With What is the result? What are people now a few weeks into the semester, the yeah. professors saying? Yeah. And there's quite a lot of grumbling They where they're saying, I... I put it on the syllabus. How many times have I already said to the student, read the syllabus? It's on the syllabus. Read the syllabus. Okay. And this is an unpopular take, but I'll just go ahead and say it. Then I think that maybe there's a communication problem yes. from the professor to the student. Yes. And this is my my whole understanding of how the syllabus worked works like this on this issue. It changed when I was talking to my mom once about it. She was a high school teacher for many years. And she said, you know, when a student asks a question that you think they should know the answer to, she said, sometimes it's just that they are striking up a conversation with you. And that reframed the whole deal. I think 
a lot of that huffy, defensive, it's on the syllabus. I think some of that is introvert, academic geekiness. Like, why didn't you carefully read my wonderful words of wisdom? You know, get over yourself. And first of all, it's on the syllabus, but maybe it's not as clear as you thought it was. Maybe it is on the syllabus, but it doesn't make any sense. It might to you, but it does to the student. Or, uh, and I'll go even further. Maybe it is very clear on the syllabus and the student didn't read the syllabus. So what? You have a chance now to interact with them. Even better, you have a chance to look at the syllabus together. The syllabus shouldn't just be you hand it out the first day and then it just exists out there, you know, in the ether and hopefully they read it. You should be looking at it together all the time. You should be ideally even the first week students are annotating it with questions that you're answering or they're doing a syllabus quiz. And then throughout the semester, you're looking at it. So when a student says, ask me a question that I know for a fact is answered on the syllabus, I now I can see it as an opportunity and it's low stakes. I can talk with them like for, for someone as socially awkward as I am, I am glad to have an opportunity to interact with someone like in, with some clear parameters of what we're doing. So instead of thinking, oh my God, it's on the syllabus, I'm like, that's a good question. Let's, let's look at the syllabus together. I think I answered it on there, so let's take a look. And we look at it together and we can admire my beautiful syllabus together. <laughs> but I, I would very much agree with you that there could be a communication problem and even more so that it's a communication opportunity. The student's giving you an opportunity to make a connection, to demonstrate that you care about their success, that you are not unapproachable, that you're not sitting in your ivory tower, assuming that they know how to read a syllabus. I mean, we haven't even touched on issues of inclusivity, but the syllabus might be, if it's not, if it's not clear, then there might be like all kinds of hidden curriculum going on that uh, first generation students may not be clued in on that seem like second nature to you. Sorry, now I'm on a syllabus rant. I'll die. No, I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up because that's really interesting to me. And I, I, when I teach, the first class session is at least half of the first class session. We just all read the syllabus together yeah. as the class. I read it out loud. I And everything's broken down week by mm -hmm. week. And I ask, okay, does anybody have a question? And then, you know, we go through the whole thing. And then at the end, I say to them, you know, ask me your questions, because if you show up at the next session, <laughs> we've agreed to this as our contract. Yeah, I've told you what we're going to do. And you've come back saying, yes, I'm going to do that. And then a lot of hands go up like, well, I don't understand <laughs> this. Well, what about that? Well, what if I don't want to give an oral report? Right? You know, something yeah, else yeah. for me? Yeah. You know, my, my baby's first birthday is going to be this week. Mm. I, you know, what, is that an excused absence? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we just get into it and, yeah. and we go through the whole thing. And one of the things I've learned from doing that is students may think they know how to read a syllabus. Yeah, and that's true. 
it occurs to me after doing that, the majority of them don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't truly understand how it works. I love in the in the book, you tell us what to really be intentional about, about putting in it and what we're being really intentional about putting in it. Mm-hmm. But on their end, we haven't told them what to be intentional about getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is, uh, that's part of our, our job, helping them do that effectively. And I think it's part of the hidden curriculum. You know, you're yeah. bringing that up about inclusivity and yeah. do we know that they know how to read the syllabus yeah. the way we intended? I think that's part of the hidden curriculum. We, yeah. we prep so well and we think we say it so clearly and we're saying that from having been a professional student for a very long time and now being a professor. Um, yeah. And we're assuming that, that they know what they don't know. I think it's tied into the hidden curriculum. Yeah. yeah. And let's be honest. How much skimming do we do of documents that maybe should be we should read more carefully, like email communications or, you know, important uh, uh, communications from your teaching center, for example, just off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, we all, especially right now, you know, we've all got cognitive overload. We're being pulled in many different directions. I've been telling my students that you know, three years ago, I had one calendar. It was a desk calendar, and I wrote down on it what I needed to do and where I needed to be. You know what I have now? I have a desk calendar. I have my Google calendar. I have a dry erase yearly calendar, and I have a paper monthly calendar, and I need all of them. And they repeat each other because I can't remember where I'm supposed to be when unless I've written it down several times and consulted several different ways. And maybe that's partly, hello, I'm 51, but it's also because the pandemic has created major brain drain for all of us. So, you know, if your students, maybe they didn't grasp all the finer points of your beautiful syllabus, you know, we, we all could use some redundancy in our life. You know, repeated directions are good for everybody right now. And you urge us to remember that in the book, that we need to dial down our defensiveness. We Mm -hmm. need to increase our awareness. And we need to be aware that there's a power dynamic going on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We have more power than they do. So if we come back grumpy or we say it's in the syllabus, we're invoking way more power in that exchange than we're yeah. aware that we are. I think, too, that I, that perfectionists are disproportionately represented in academia um, and graduate school doesn't doesn't help there. Like we're we're pretty tr- trained to defend our ideas like viciously and you know, any falling short of perfect in our our thinking and our verbiage and our writing is this like big sin. So we're we're <laughs> we we come in really defensive, especially with that super teacher ideal in our mind. But we all make mistakes when we're learning how to do something. 
that's part of learning, like Joshua in Joshua Eiler's book, How Humans Learn. I mean, it's just part of how we learn. And that includes teaching effectively. You know, and ideally, we have employment, employment um, stability that allows us to practice because that's what we all need to learn how to do anything. You know, riding a bike, learning to swim, writing a thesis statement, teaching effectively. Those take practice, a lot of practice. And that's something you remind us in the book that to be a teacher means that you're pretty much made a commitment to lifelong learning of pedagogy. Yes. <laughs> Your students learning what the content that you're teaching and yep. you are continually learning how to teach what you're teaching. That's right. Yeah. Uh, to teach what you teach, to teach your subjects to your students, to help your students learn. And your, your students are always changing, you know? So yeah, it, it is lifelong learning and framed in that way. It's like, I, like I say in the book, you know, the best and worst news I can ever tell you about DJ, you know, that it requires lots of practice and that that's not good news in the sense that you're not going to just be able to plop down in the classroom and do it perfectly. But the good news is we all keep learning and improving. There is so much more in this book than we have touched on, but we we do that deliberately here at New Books Network. We you know, like to take a few deep dives into the book, and we trust that the listeners are going to go get a copy of the book, and particularly because it's a pedagogy book. It's the kind that you want to buy and have on your shelf at home anyway. <laughs> so in the few minutes we have left, um, I want to ask you, what do you hope this conversation sparks for listeners? Um, well, besides, you know, uh, multiple faculty reading groups adopting geeky pedagogy and inviting me to come talk to your book groups. Um, besides that, I would say that the when I was writing the book, I kept thinking about who I was writing for. And to all of you listening, who we have some things in common, who are introverts and who were drawn into academia by this all-encompassing just passion for your subject and are having to come to terms with the realities of teaching, that it is not life in the ivory tower like you might, at least like I imagined it, you know, sitting, thinking our thoughts. Um, there is a way for us to connect with our students and to facilitate effective learning and to even nerd out about teaching the same way we've nerded out about our, our subjects to, to get our advanced degrees. So for, for those folks, I see you. <laughs> And you know what, if, if someone as introverted, as awkward as me can do it, so can you. That's a great takeaway. <laughs> Dr. Newhouse, thank you so much for being here Thanks and telling us me. about your work with Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers, and for giving us a sneak peek in your forthcoming book. <laughs> Thanks so much.
I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.